Beto, you, you announced yesterday you'd raised $38.1 million in the previous quarter. Are you going to be able to spend all that money before the end of the race, and what are you going to spend it on? Yeah. So, as, as you know, that money uh, was raised beginning three and a half months ago. So, you could also imagine much of that has been spent already. It's not like there's 38 sitting in the bank ready to go. Um, so, so, that money has been used to support volunteers who are knocking on doors, pop-up offices that are springing up all over the state. The answer is yes, we, we can use every dime and more. This is last Saturday, backstage at the McAllen Convention Center a few miles from the U.S.-Mexico border. There are half a dozen reporters standing around Beto. He takes my question last, then starts to walk away. We're going to head in. Okay. Okay. So, so we're going to go. Please, sir. Please, sir. Super quick. Sorry. This guy is wearing scrubs, comes up suddenly, and hands Beto a lightsaber. You're part of the rebellion, and we're going against the Empire. You're Luke Skywalker, my friend, so keep that up. Okay. Beto keeps moving toward the stage. I'm following. He's had a topsy-turvy week. There was the fundraising hall, but also two polls that showed him trailing Ted Cruz by nearly 10 points. We stop by the stage door. Massachusetts Congressman Joe Kennedy is finishing up his introduction. I ask Beto about the bad poll numbers. I don't think it's catching all these young people. I don't think it's catching this crowd. He's introducing me right now. He walks out into the main hall. It's pandemonium. I'd gotten here two days earlier. The plan was to talk with voters and watch Team Beto on the ground. But then I got a message from one of Ted Cruz's aides. The senator was willing to talk with me. Tomorrow morning at the Petroleum Club in downtown Houston. That was 350 miles away. So I got in my car and headed north. This is Underdog, a production of Texas Monthly and Pineapple Street Media. I'm Eric Benson. The election is just over two and a half weeks away. Early voting begins three days from now. In the first half of this episode, we're going to take you into the Cruz campaign, where being Texan and being Republican are one and the same. In the second half, we're going to show you how the Republican Party came to power in Texas and why they've maintained near total power for a quarter century. It's a history that may be relevant in 2018 for both Beto and Cruz. This week, Red State. Ted Cruz and I meet on an elevator. We're on our way up to the Petroleum Club. It's on the 35th floor of a skyscraper in downtown Houston. Oh, is that a press alert in the elevator? Senator, this is Eric here. You're talking to the text monthly. Hey, this is Senator hey, Sullivan. Yeah, Sullivan. Cruz is traveling with Alaska Senator Dan Sullivan and a few aides. They make small talk about their final votes late the night before. It's amazing, though, as they delayed long enough that most of the people missed their flights. Is that right? Cruz wants to get settled when we arrive. And after a few minutes, I'm taken to meet him. We sit down in two chairs in an otherwise totally empty conference room. The view is endless Houston sprawl. Cruz wipes his eyes and lets out a yawn. <laughs> Did you just go to Washington? Well, I landed at uh, 1.30 in the morning. 
So. Beto had just announced his massive $38.1 million fundraising quarter, which was not only the most a Senate candidate has ever raised, but three times more than Cruz raised during the same period. Congressman O'Rourke has been raising tens of millions of dollars uh, from all over the country. Uh, and, and the reason is simple. He's running hard, hard left, uh, like a Bernie Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren. And national liberal activists are, are flooding the state of Texas uh, with money. Um, that's very good if you want to fundraise uh, on the east and west coasts. Uh, but the positions he's taking, the record he's running on, uh, is far out of, out of step with the people of Texas. Over the summer, the Houston Chronicle crunched both campaigns' fundraising numbers and found that Cruz actually had a higher percentage of out-of-state money than Beto when it came to donations over $200. Neither campaign has to report donations under $200. At the time, Cruz's spokesperson said that Americans from all parts of the country look to Senator Cruz to be a voice for their values. But Cruz doesn't want to cop to any of this now or talk about the super PACs and advocacy groups spending on his behalf. He doesn't want to talk about how this is a nationalized race on both sides. He's a famously disciplined politician, and his message is simple. Beto O'Rourke may be from Texas, but he's out of step with what Cruz calls Texas values. You, you know, this election, I've noticed you've talked a lot about kind of culturally what it means to be a Texan, you know, barbecue, and you're wearing your ostrich leather boots right now. Um, you also talk a lot about conservative values. Do you think it's possible to be a liberal and a true Texan? Oh, sure. Look, uh, Willie Nelson's pretty liberal and he's pretty Texan. Uh, but you know what? I like his music more than his politics. Cruz's campaign slogan is tough as Texas. Later that day, at a rally at a place called the Firehouse Saloon, he's really playing the part. The Firehouse is located just off an interstate near downtown Houston. But inside, it wants you to think you're in some ramshackle honky-tonk off a windy dirt road. Neon beer signs, cheap wood paneling, a big American flag tacked to the wall. The rally begins with a minister leading a prayer. Then there's the Pledge of Allegiance. Then the Pledge of Texas. Finally, Dan Sullivan, the Alaska senator I met in the elevator, comes on to fire up the crowd. So if you want to keep Texas's economy booming, if you want to make sure we continue to get judges who understand it's their job to read the words of the statute in the Constitution. So listen, we got to get out. You got to get out. Tell your friends. By the time Cruz appears, his 150 or so supporters are pumped. God bless Texas. And God bless Alaska. And God bless America. Cruz knows his base. More than 90% of likely Republican voters in Texas have a favorable opinion of him. But you know who Texas Republicans like even more than Ted Cruz? Donald Trump. And both Beto and Cruz have learned a thing or two about how Trump connects with voters. At the debate earlier this week, Beto resurrected Trump's nickname for Cruz, Lion Ted. Beto said that it had stuck for a reason. And at this rally, Cruz is going full Trump too. We just went through an incredible couple of weeks. I like beer. 
sorry, sir. If you've ever had a beer, you're ineligible for government service. <laughs> Cruz gives Beto a Trumpian nickname, Comrade Beto. He makes fun of the media coverage of Beto. Have y'all noticed that about every two days, there's another glowing media profile of Beto O'Rourke? Their favorite adjective for him, by the way, is Kennedy-esque. He puts his hand on his chin and makes a bit of a Zoolander pout with his lips. By the way, he had Joe Kennedy down here campaigning with him. And Joe Kennedy was driving him around. I have to admit, it may be the first time in history anyone's ever asked a Kennedy to drive. Yes, that is a Chappaquiddick joke. But the media doesn't want to cover his substantive record. Instead, the media covers it's all rainbows and puppies, and he's got really good hair. Apparently, we are electing a clump of hair. It's a weird line, because Beto has pretty unremarkable hair, but it doesn't matter. Cruz is painting with a broad brush here. What he wants voters to know is that Beto is not tough as Texas, that Beto doesn't share those Texas values, that he's them, not us. They are coming after our liberty. They are coming after our freedom. They are coming after our rights. And the reason I want to share optimism and hope is when liberty is at stake, when freedom is threatened, Texans rise to the occasion. Cruz finishes and a guy behind me starts in with... Don't mess with Texas. Don't mess with Texas. That's Stuart Maper. He's short, white-haired, wearing American flag suspenders. I was born in Brooklyn, so I got a message to uh, Jerry Nadler, who wants to become the chairman of the judiciary of the House side. Don't mess with Texas, Jerry. Don't mess with Texas. Stuart and I might be the only people in this room, other than Cruz and Sullivan, who know who Jerry Nadler is. For the record, he's a Manhattan congressman, and I only know who he is because I was born in his district. I also know from the way Stewart talks that he might very well have grown up down the block from Jerry Nadler. So is, Jerry, is Jerry Nadler like your cousin or so? You, what's, what's so personal with, with Jerry Nadler? Because I think he epitomizes what the liberals are all about. What do you, what do you think of Beto O'Rourke? He doesn't emit Texas values, and for some reason he's getting a lot of money out of Texas. So I tell the rest of the people, don't mess with Texas. I think for me the most important things are just freedom and liberty now. And I'll tell you why I say that, because we look at what's taking place nowadays. I think the Democrat Party has really shown who they are. And I, I think that many of them now have admitted to being um, admitted to being socialist. That's Dr. Robin Armstrong, former vice chairman of the Texas Republican Party. As I walk through the room, I hear a lot of comments like this. People talking freedom, liberty, and Texas values. There's not a lot of talk about Cruz himself. No one is handing Cruz a lightsaber. Though there is a cocktail waitress with a tray full of Cruz-branded drinks. This is called Smooth Cruz. It's the cocktail of the day. It's what, double what is it called? Smooth Cruz. Smooth Cruz. Smooth Cruz. What is it? What's a Smooth Cruz? Smooth Cruz, it consists of a Devil's River, bourbon whiskey, uh, and it mixed with a uh, triple sec and sweet and sour. I meet two women who have driven up from Santa Fe, Texas. Santa Fe was the site of a school shooting in May. Two teachers and eight students were killed. 
were you affected by the, by the, I mean, of course you were, but were you directly yes, affected? I lost my cousin in the shooting, first stone. That's Angela Wissening. My child just happened to be on the other side of the building that day. That's Donna Hayes. Both Angela and Donna are Cruz supporters. They're concerned about school safety. Angela actually likes what Beto has to say about that. From what I have seen, like the little things that he sends to our house every day or sends me on my text message every week, um, there are some things that are great when it comes to school, you know, the funding and the teacher sat. You know, there's a lot of, he pushes a lot what it looks like to us on from what he's showing us. It looks like there is a lot to do with schools, you know, and safety and teachers and the education, making it more academically fit for the, our students. I mean, there's a lot of things that he is wanting to push for schools. There's a but. We just can't put in Beto because we like what he wants to do with schools. That would create a much bigger problem in Texas. I keep moving through the room talking to Cruz supporters, and I hear something that surprises me. A lot of them used to be Democrats. There's a grandmother named Sharon Bouchard. Are you like a lifelong Republican, or how's your, what's your... Actually, I grew up Democrat. My dad was a Democrat, and I voted for Kennedy. That was the first time I'd ever voted. And over the years, I changed my mind. There's a guy named James Bell who says he works in tech. No, when I was in college, I was a liberal, just like every other college student. The first time uh, I understood what the difference between a conservative and a liberal was was when I heard Rush Limbaugh for the first time. Stuart Maper used to be a Democrat. Were you a Republican when you moved down 40 years ago? Actually, I wasn't. Ronald Reagan turned me in 1980, and I never looked back. So did Robin Armstrong. Well, I grew up in a Democrat home. Uh, my dad was on the school board, and, and I, so I grew up Democrat as I went through high school, but then in college I started to, to think more conservatively. Even Rick Perry, our longtime and very conservative former governor, he used to be a Democrat. Last week I mentioned that no Democrat has won a statewide office here since 1994. And Texas has produced many of the most powerful Republicans of the last few decades. Bush 41 and Bush 43. Newt Gingrich's top deputies, Dick Armey and Tom DeLay. Even everyone's favorite kooky libertarian uncle, Ron Paul. But Texas wasn't always a Republican state. For a very long time, the Republican Party barely even existed here. The Republican Party started to grow really a little bit before I came here, let's say in the 1960s. I think that's really when things start changing over. And interestingly enough, there are, it's almost a reverse of the present day. That's Wayne Thorburn. He's a longtime Republican operative, served in the Reagan and Bush administrations. But he also has a PhD in political science, and he wrote a book about how Texas turned red. It's called, appropriately, Red State. And when he talks about the dynamics of how that happened, it's like listening to someone describe an upside-down world. If you take a look at any kind of polling data from the 60s, 70s, even up into the early 80s, and you ask people whether they tend to be more Republican, Democrat, or independent, um, and you break that, the results by age groups, the most Republican group was always the 18 to 29-year-olds. The most Democratic group were the over 65s. There was a lot of young support for the newness of conservatism. It's kind of a contradictory labeling, but that's the way it was. Uh, individual freedom, uh, anti-communism, um, challenging the existing 
quote-unquote establishment of the time, which tended to be Democrat. It wasn't just young people. It was also people moving to Texas from Republican states, coming for white-collar jobs in Dallas and Houston in their suburbs. This era was a mirror image of today. Middle-class voters in the big cities were the Republican Party's base. Salt-of-the-earth, blue-collar rural voters were Democrats to the core. The political parties themselves were totally different in the 1960s, especially in Texas. Within the Democratic Party, there were conservatives who supported segregation, but also liberals who championed the Civil Rights Act and Medicare. There were plenty of conservative Republicans, but when future President George H.W. Bush was a Republican congressman in Houston in the late 1960s, he championed Planned Parenthood and supported abortion rights. This isn't to say that Texas wasn't conservative. In many ways, it was quite conservative. But the Democratic Party's brand was so strong that voters would pick a liberal Democrat over any Republican. Then came the 1978 governor's race. The Democrats were having one of those traditional battles for governor in the Democratic primary between the conservative governor, Dolph Briscoe, and the more liberal attorney general, John Hill. And in that 1978 Democratic primary, the more liberal candidate, John Hill, defeated the sitting governor. That led to an opportunity for the Republicans to mount a serious challenge. John Hill was a very brilliant, able uh, plaintiff's attorney and a great attorney general, and so he had a high reputation. So it was a classic David and Goliath type of thing where and Hill won the primary. And then we got to the general election, and uh, Bill Clements came around with a lot more money than we had, and frankly, a lot more sophistication. Jack Martin was deputy campaign manager for John Hill. He went on to be a top strategist for Lloyd Benson and Ann Richards. He's now the CEO of a global public relations firm. He's advising Beto, too. That's the first time I remember seeing the professional phone banks and get-out-the-vote mechanism in a campaign. Texans had elected and re-elected one Republican, U.S. Senator John Tower. But a lot of people considered him a fluke. Bill Clements was going to show that Republicans could change the state. He was a great Texas character, a Dallas oil man who lived up to stereotype. He was brash, tough, and filthy rich. He liked to say he was Texan to his toenails. Remember again, the base of the Republican vote was urban middle class. And pretty much the rural areas were overwhelmingly Democratic. And so what he did was Project 230. And that is that he got in, in a mobile home and he and his wife and his campaign staff going to all these counties where traditionally a candidate either would never have been seen or if they had been seen, they would have been a Democrat running in the Democratic primary. Clements ended up visiting all 254 counties, making inroads into areas that previous Republican candidates had shunned. That was a big part of his campaign. Sound familiar? Clements had the good fortune to run in a midterm election with an unpopular Democratic president in the White House. But his victory still came as a shock. No Republican had served as governor of Texas since Edmund J. Davis left office in 1874. Clements won by a mere 17,000 votes. 
Wayne Thorburn remembers what it felt like on election night. Total elation at that point. Um, and I think it really was late that night that we were able to, to determine that he was going to win. And yeah, I mean, it was a new world. And the Democrats? It signaled to me that we were, from that day forward, we're going to have to fight for everything. So will 2018 look like 1978? Steady Democratic gains in the big cities, the leftward tilt of younger voters, migration from the blue states, the unpopularity of Donald Trump, add in a surging Latino population. Will all those factors burbling beneath the surface suddenly erupt and change the landscape for decades to come? Or will Beto versus Cruz look like a far more recent race? I've become only the second female Democratic gubernatorial candidate since Ann Richards. Every four years or so, Texas Democrats tell themselves that this time, they finally have what it takes to turn Texas blue. In 2002, Democrats had a slate they called the Dream Team. They all lost. In 2010, Houston Mayor Bill White was going to dethrone Rick Perry. He failed. The Republican Party has simply been too strong to overcome. From 1995 until 2015, Texas had just two governors, and they were both popular, charismatic Republicans, George W. Bush and Rick Perry. The party oversaw an aggressive redistricting campaign that gave it more congressional seats and minimized the number of competitive districts. Stringent voter ID laws cut down on turnout. And the Republican Party became genuinely popular in Texas. Many of its policies were popular. Many of its politicians were popular. The economy was good. And the party was smart about branding. Jack Martin saw that from the other side. I think they've also done a good job of sort of wrapping themselves in the Texas flag and, and convincing people that I'm for you. The old thing in politics is you've got to convince people you're, you're, you're for them. But even with all this, in 2014, Democrats talked themselves into believing that they had finally found the one. My name is Wendy Davis. I was the Democratic nominee for governor in 2014, a former Texas state senator, founder of Deeds Not Words. Wendy Davis was Beto before Beto. Good-looking, inspiring, a winner. She'd had a star-making moment, too. A 12-hour filibuster to stop an anti-abortion bill from being passed in the Texas State Senate. That got a ton of national media attention. And soon, she was making her run for governor. The dream was the same as it is now. Change the electorate, register new voters, turn out those Democratic-leaning non-voters. Beto's line about Texas not being a red state or a blue state, but a non-voting state? That was Wendy Davis's line first. He stole that from me, by the way. <laughs> I invented it. Um, I think it, it was born out of frustration. But I commented once, and then it kind of started getting some traction, that Texas is really not a red state. It's a non-voting blue state. That observation may be true, but it didn't help Davis win. Her opponent, State Attorney General Greg Abbott, had been amassing a campaign war chest for years. President Obama was unpopular in Texas, and there was a growing sense that Davis wasn't in charge of her campaign. She'd outsourced too much. Her messages were focus-grouped. I agree with the assessment that I 
did not exercise the control over my campaign that I would have looking back. But we got into this great big campaign, and I thought, well, everyone knows how to do this better than me. Davis tried to triangulate. She said she supported the open carry of handguns, even though she later said she didn't really believe in it. She was pandering, and everyone could smell it. Swing voters weren't convinced. Progressives felt betrayed. As the election neared, Davis saw her chances slipping away. You know, it's the... It's the... um, Oh, what's the term of art for it? Um, Self-fulfilling prophecy. Our polling was looking quite competitive for a time. And I don't remember when that began to shift. It was, I think, probably early summer when the polls started showing a a wider spread between me and Greg Abbott. And that gets so much press attention. And unfortunately, it instills in the minds of voters who you're trying to convince to show up that the race is lost before it's even begun. Were you surprised by the margin of the loss? I was. Uh, That was hard because I wanted to show, even in losing, that the state was going forward, that we were going to improve upon the last statewide race um, that Bill White had run. Um, And we didn't. We did did less well. Um, So that was really hard because then you worry about whether you've personally done something to contribute to taking the state backward, not forward. Davis thinks Beto has run a far better campaign. But the easy prediction is that Texas is going to keep looking like, well, Texas. That Republicans will continue to dominate in 2018 and for years to come. But Wayne Thorburn, he sees something changing here. The state in the midst of another shift. Now, the problem for the Republicans today is that they tend to appeal to people like me. I'm 74. I'm white. Uh, you know, I'm male. That's I'm, I'm dying out. Hopefully not anytime soon. But the fact is that that my generation, and as I clean out my email list, I realize that a lot of my generation is dying off. And um, if you're in, rural areas are losing population. So younger voters, which back when the party was growing, was tended to be Republican, now tends to be Democratic. Older voters, who then were Democrat, are now tending to be Republican. Suburbanites, who are less Republican than they were 20, 30 years ago. The only thing saving the Republicans is the Democrats' failure to take advantage of that. Back at the Petroleum Club, as we look out over downtown Houston, Ted Cruz surprises me for just a moment. He suggests that Republican dominance isn't a sure thing in the future either. Do you you think there's going to be a Democrat elected to statewide office in Texas in the next 20 years? I don't know. Um, I don't believe there's going to be one in 2018. Uh, and, And I hope not. But, you know, look. Any party uh, that, 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 that is in office can get complacent, uh, can get fat and happy, and, and, and stop fighting for the needs of the people. I, I, I think 
we're producing real results. Republicans are producing real results for the people of Texas, and, and I think as long as we continue doing that, uh, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll continue to win elections. But, but I believe deeply that the people should hold our elected officials accountable. Next week, we join back up with Beto in the epicenter of non-voting Texas, the Rio Grande Valley. It's home to 1.3 million people, and it's heavily Latino and heavily Democratic. But Texas politicos will all tell you the same thing. People in the valley, they just don't vote. Beto is spending a ton of time there, and the valley is full of exactly the kind of voters he needs. Can he turn them out? Um, board organization is trying to increase the Democratic vote here in the Rio Grande Valley, and I was wondering if you were going to vote these midterms. No, we don't. We don't want to vote. Thank you. We don't vote. No, uh, just, if you don't mind me asking, can I ask you why? It's just uh, I'm not. I don't like to vote. You don't like to vote? Uh, is there like any specific reason? I don't want to get into details, so. All right. Okay. Good luck, guys. We could do something to. to no, no, no. It's just, it's just a personal. Underdog is a co-production of Texas Monthly and Pineapple Street Media. Our executive producers are Max Linsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Brian Standifer, who also scored and mixed the show. Underdog is produced by Chris Berube and edited by Joel Lovell, with help from Jonathan Menhivar. Our theme is Bloodhounds on My Trail, written, produced, and performed by the Black Angels, courtesy of Light in the Attic Records. Jorge Castillo played guitar for the score. I wrote, reported, and hosted this thing. I'm Eric Benson. Thanks for listening.